Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Genetics Podcast. I'm really excited to be here today with Dr. Mark Cotter, the CEO and founder of BitBio, a company that's developed what I think is an amazing and novel method for cell reprogramming. Mark has a very compelling vision for building a platform and a company that can program ultimately every human cell type. We're not there yet today, uh, but we're going to talk about what it might take to get there. And this, of course, has applications in fundamental research into basic biology and the building blocks of life, as well as medical applications like cell therapies. Um, So we're going to dig into each of these hopefully today. And Mark, first of all, thank you so much and welcome to the podcast. Patrick, thank you for having me here. Really good to be on the podcast. I'd love to start if you could take us back to when you were actually first introduced to the concept of stem cells and cellular reprogramming. You were not a scientist initially. You're actually a surgeon. And I'm really interested to hear what got you so interested in this topic and caused you to maybe change career trajectories from what you might have imagined when you started medical school. It's been quite a journey, uh, quite frankly. I started off um, actually studying maths and physics, but halfway through the course, felt that this was not taking me into the future that I desired. So I sort of had a deep crisis, rethought what I I needed to do and what my purpose was in life, uh, and made the choice to switch tack and go into medical school. And in medical school, I very quickly realized there was pretty drawn into the why questions, so the research in addition to the application. And so I was very lucky that during that time, I met my later PhD supervisor at the University of Cambridge. And the idea that I had was to somehow combine something to do with the brain and, um, and the spinal cord with my future career. And so after I finished medical school, I joined Robin Franklin's lab uh, at the University of Cambridge, and he, we were investigating regenerative processes in the brain and spinal cord. And we weren't—we didn't actually know that we were studying stem cells. Essentially, that—that that wasn't a particular topic at that point in time. But very rapidly, of course, it became a topic. And through a lot of luck uh, and hard work, I ended up um, a few a few years later, a decade nearly later, as a PI at the University of Cambridge, and I was part of what are what were the early beginnings of the Stem Cell Institute, under the umbrella of Roger Peterson, who was one of the founders of um, embryonic stem cell research. So that put me in a very 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 important spot where I was able to work as a surgeon already sort of going undergoing my training but at the same time i was able to do some research and continue my own research and one of the things that i noticed was that um, there's a big difference between human and animal biology just by studying the same cell in animals models but also then from surgical samples but the whole reason why I went into surgery, into neurosurgery, was because I had this idea of using cells to promote repair. And where was the field at when you started your PhD and where is it at today? What have been the major changes? And then what are the things that maybe stubbornly haven't uh, changed as much as we might like? There were some really radical changes <laughs> since then. <laughs> Probably the biggest was initially that wave of realization that human stem cells could potentially provide a source of any cell type if we could somehow harness them. Turns out it's much more difficult. And although we've been working with human stem cells for nearly 30 years now, there's still no product in the clinic. There's no treatment at the moment. Um, And that just tells you how difficult it is to control these. That was sort of 
that was a wave of interest that came together and that uh, was the reason why the Stem Cell Institute in Cambridge was formed. But in terms of scientific breakthroughs, there was one particular one that I think has really shaped um, our understanding of stem cells, but also of cell identity as such. And that was the discovery of Shinya Yamanaka, who showed that you can turn probably any cell back into a stem cell by activating a code of transcription factors. Four different transcription factors. Um, if you activate them together in a cell, they can turn a cell back into a stem cell state. And of course, that's mind-blowing because it allows you now to create stem cells from any individual. It took away all the ethical constraints of working with human stem cells. And it also means that every one of us has their own repair kit, in theory. Now, this inspired a colleague of mine called Marius Wernig in Stanford, um, who thought maybe that concept of using transcription factors to program cell identity um, could be generalized. And what he did was he was he developed a protocol that, that allows you to turn a skin cell directly into a brain cell. And then another program that allows you to turn a stem cell directly into a brain cell, and ultimately even a liver cell directly into, the, uh, into a, a neuron. Not quite sure what this is uh, useful for, but uh, it serves to show the point that uh, we have to rethink the concepts of cell identity, what makes a cell a cell. And it suggests that it's radically different from what we used to think, that cells are defined by their history. It's more likely that cells are actually, the, the identity of a cell is contained in the cellular state at the moment that is driven by transcription factors and gene, and, and gene regulatory networks, so programs. That's a pretty, I guess, profound distinction. I'd love to hear more about that. What So if, if that's true, where cellular identity is about transcriptional state and there isn't a path dependence or, or maybe not as much of a path dependence as we might think, what does that allow us to do that, that maybe wouldn't be possible in, a, in, in the previous paradigm where path dependence and the past history of a cell had some fundamental impact on its future? Well, I think it changes everything. Um, if the identity, the, the, the sub-identity, the state of a cell is defined by the active genetic programs and not by the history uh, where, uh, where the cell accumulates epigenetic changes in order to then form a particular cell type, we can completely rethink how we generate cells, how we manufacture cells, and what might be possible. So one of the interesting origins of all of this research is really a, a string of scientific investigations and papers that were conducted in the 1980s when Weintraub uh, and Lazar essentially demonstrated that you can turn a skin cell into a muscle cell. And that was the very first transcriptional reprogramming um, protocol. And he started these speculations and one of the questions that he asked is whether it might be possible to create hybrid cell types, cells that have traits of two completely distinct cells, um, like a pigment cell and melanocyte, 
and a muscle cell. And, and he showed that this is possible, which essentially means that in this paradigm, you can not only create cells that exist in the body, but you might be also able to create cells that actually don't exist within the body, but that are possible from the genetic network point of view. That's fascinating. So f from a rejuvenation therapy standpoint or in a, in a medical application, I'd love if you could paint the picture of Mm -hmm. what this opens up from here and, and where do we go from here. And I'm also really interested in digging into whether you see a future where individual persons, my cells, are taken out of my body, reprogrammed, and then put back in me to, to, to treat my kidney disease or brain injury or whatever it may be in the future. Or is, or is there a world where it's more of a, to use a more technical term, allogeneic, stem cell therapy where there's a bank of universal donor type cells or 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 large subset of cells that could be transplanted off the shelf so to speak into people what where do you see the future going and and what are the hurdles that we've got to face well a lot of questions so so the first one was is the way of rejuvenating people and and i think yes there there is also something like the aging program and it's it's also probably driven by a transcriptional state. But I think that sort of leads us down a completely different aspect. What can we do with cells that we can produce from pluripotent stem cells? We can use them as, as intelligent medicines. So what makes, in, what makes that medicine intelligent? The cells can replace cells that are lost. That's, of course, unique. You can't have that with small molecules or biologics. And the other thing that's unique, the cells can adapt and respond to their environment. And that's probably the reason why we've seen this incredible breakthrough with the first um, cell therapies that entered our clinical setting. CAR-Ts are, I would say, the, the, blood, the brother right flight uh, of cell therapies. These are T cells that have been engineered to, uh, to uh, identify tumor cells and wipe them out. And they've shown to be incredibly powerful in the context of blood cancers. So patients at the end of treatment can now receive a cell therapy that um, essentially eradicates the tumor. And that's incredible. Th this particular early stage, very expensive treatment is autologous. I, these are pa cells derived from the patient and engineered. To me, that is more an experimental medicine paradigm. Why? Because at the moment, um, the cost of this uh, is incredible. Uh, in in the UK, I think the NHS um, pays more than £350,000 uh, per treatment. So this is certainly not a treatment that can be rolled out to everyone and certainly not in, in lower income countries. And for me, the definition of a medicine is that it needs to be available to everyone. So we need to push beyond this personalized approach at this point in time. And there are really two op opportunities here, as you, as you mentioned. And I'm not quite sure which one is going to win. Probably they're going to sit next, aside, next to each other side by side. One is the autologous approach, where you take a cell from, from an individual, turn it back into a stem cell, and then create uh, the cell type that you require for your treatment. For example, a dopaminergic neuron if you, if you suffer from Parkinson, if you suffer from diabetes, a pancreatic islet cell. And by the way, these have been shown to be efficacy in a clinical setting. But in order to, for this to become a medicine 
by my definition, i.e. available, we need to really commoditize the process by which cells are turned back into stem cells and then turned into the cell type that you want. And that's going to be extremely difficult. It's going to happen over maybe a decade or so. But at this point in time, this approach is extremely costly. So the alternative approach then is to somehow try and match a bank of cells to the patient that requires the cells, the, allo uh, the, the allogeneic approach. And here, um, there's really three options. There's a number of cells that it turns out you don't have to match. So, for example, if you want to treat um, an individual with an NK cell that you again program so they recognize a cancer, it has been demonstrated that the NK cell doesn't need to be matched. So you can take anyone's NK cell and transplant it into, uh, into, into the patient. And that, of course, m makes for an, a huge reduction in cost for this approach. Not, not many cells can be transplanted without having to match. But we actually know how to match cells. If you think about it, we've been doing organ transplant now for decades. So we're very versed with the paradigm that allows us to match organs with patients. And we can do the same with cell therapies. And the great thing about cell therapies is that you can actually um, tap into what, what I would call super donors. So these are individuals that have the same HLA alleles on both chromosomes. And, and with a very few of those, you can match a wide, a wide population of, of individuals. I'll give you a number. About three of these super donors, if you pick the right ones, can be matched to 50-60% of the population uh, in Europe, or 12 of them can match 99% of the population in Japan. So that means you can build a relatively small bank and still provide cells off the shelf. So the cost reduction here, I imagine, is about a factor of 100 um, to, to, to patients. And then, of course, the third approach that you mentioned is maybe there's a way to make cells universal. Maybe we can create strategies for them to evade the immune system. And that is, has been achieved by, by, by quite a few labs so far. Obviously, you have to edit surface molecules, etc., in order to achieve that. But if that turns out to be successful in human beings, and if it turns out to be safe, then that will give you another option of really reducing the cost rapidly, but also making sure that the cells that, that are produced are of a much higher quality and much more specific than if you'd say you take primary autologous cells, which, which, you, which are always a mix and you never know what, really what you're getting. You at uh, BitBio, you and the team have attracted a lot of interest from a lot of very smart scientists, very uh, very smart venture capitalists and funders to help you to build this vision. I'm, I'd love to hear more about what it is that you all are doing really differently and how you're tackling some of these challenges that you've outlined. So, so BitBio is really built on this paradigm of cell reprogramming, which basically means we can now, with our technology, turn a stem cell into probably any cell type within days, and we can get pure cultures. That is something 
that everyone dreamed, but nobody thought possible. And this is, and the reason why we can do this is because we have understood the biology behind cell reprogramming, a process called gene silencing. A cell essentially recognizes if you try and switch on a different program and tries to shut it down. So we had to trick them into accepting the new program. And, uh, and we did this using uh, an approach that targets the genetic safe harbors. We call it OptioX and it optimizes the inducible expression of transcription factors or other genes. And so this creates a platform by which we can turn the fuzzy logic of biology into something that is deterministic. And it's extremely scalable as well, by the way. So we have a sister company, Meetable, that just announced the first product, a sausage made of porcine iPSCs with fat uh, and muscle cells. And they're now in the trillion cell range on a weekly basis, pushing beyond now that the kilogram range, obviously they have to go into the ton and then kiloton range. But it is possible. This biology scales incredibly. And so, so that's one pillar. I would say that's our manufacturing platform. The other pillar that we had to build is what I call the discovery platform. So because nearly all stem cell research focuses on directed differentiation, which is essentially using chemical cues in order to um, recapitulate what happens during development. The space of transcription factor reprogramming, the knowledge space is, is very is very patchy. So very little is known. So there are not many cell programs out there. And what we wanted to do is we wanted to be in a position where the company can create any cell type from scratch. So Let's say tomorrow morning I wake up and I say, ooh, I'd like to have uh, a pancreatic islet cell. We can do that. We have built the systems that allow us to screen transcription factor combinations in very high throughput and scale. And, and we've systematized the discovery process and then the translation into product. So the productization process so that we can that we can actually produce this. I think this is totally unique. I don't think there's another company or even lab um, that can do that. Essentially create cell types de novo. The competitors that we have, they're mainly based on in-licensing uh, of existing IP. So, so we, we can create, in, in theory, every human cell type, and then we can manufacture it uh, as well. And, uh, and, and so this is a very... I mean, this, this is huge if you think about the, the opportunities. And that's a blessing, but also a curse. Why is it huge? Every cell in the body is a potential cure, is a, is a therapy. So that's the potential. It's also a, a thing that you can use to do research and, and drug discovery. So these are the applications. Again, a very sort of important impact for uh, opportunity. But as a startup, of course, you, you have to... Um, and although we we are a late stage startup, so we've raised about two hundred million so far, we have to be careful with with our focus, and so we have to show the depth of our platform. In this case, how clinically relevant the platform is. In in addition to the breadth of the platform, demonstrating that we can actually do what we say, we can actually add cell types uh, at, uh, at at our at Libertum. And and so and and so that's where we are at this point in time. This transition um, from a sort of a late stage, I would say, startup scale up stage to a company that 
um, hopefully in the not too distant future uh, is is in the clinic demonstrating what this technology can actually do. Yeah, yeah, I think that's perfect. And you you talked about this breadth versus depth challenge. I'd love to hear more about where you all are going deep and where the field is going deep. What are the types of diseases or cell types that are going to have the biggest impact first? So, so I can't announce what we're doing right now. But uh, if you think about it theoretically, you want to find a application of human cells that is de-risk as much as possible, i.e. where there has been efficacy or there has been a very strong clinical signal in a previous clinical trial. So that's one criteria, I would say. The second criteria is you want to have a condition where you don't have to think about or too much about the matching question for the first pass into the clinic. You just want to make sure that the cells do what they need to do in order to help a particular indication. So we, we're obviously talking about an autologous approach there. And there's ways of making cells autologous. Encapsulation is another uh, thing that I haven't actually um, discussed yet. That's uh, the route that uh, Vertex has taken, for example, with their pancreatic islet cells. And another paradigm perhaps is think about cells that have large impact independent where you need to put them. Administering cells into the brain is a much higher barrier than, say, infusing them into the bloodstream. So those are the criteria by which I would say um, you can decide uh, what is a good first path into the clinic. That's really helpful and in many ways more helpful than naming any specific diseases because I was going to follow up and ask about the framework and actually how you think about these. Is... um, is it fair to say that delivery is one of the big challenges across the board? How do you get cells or, or cell therapies to the right tissue? Because you mentioned the challenge of the brain compared to blood or liver and others. That seems to be a, a challenge that almost everybody in the cell and gene therapy space that we talk to comes up against in one way or another. It varies, as I, as I said. You know, it, it, you know, infusing something into someone's blood is, is typically pretty easy. Um, getting the cells to the patient might be tricky. Um, so the, um, the, so the logistics of it, especially if you take autologous cells. The ideal version here, of course, is if you've got an off the shelf product that is frozen, you know, that you could just take out of the fridge essentially and administer. And that's really the holy grail. You know, obviously that's something that we'd like to uh, deliver. But uh, there are organs that are very delicate, very specific very, very difficult to reach where cells have to be administered in a very particular occasion, location or where they have to integrate in a very particular way. So let's think about the brain again. In most cases, even if you've got the most beautiful neurons, so it, it won't su- suffice to put them into the brain because they would then have to create connections with other neurons and they have to sort of, some some of those connections will be very distant. So they, they'd have to navigate their processes across a very complex organ. And I think that is going to be an, uh, a challenge all the way. Other cell types in the brain might be easier. So if you think about the glial compartment, for example. But the good news is that in in some instances, you can actually choose a location for the cells that isn't the original location. So let's go back to this wonderful example of um, the pancreatic islet cells. It was like 
for me, that was like an earthquake when they announced the data. The first patient that was treated with a pancreatic islet cell was cured from his diabetes, did no, no longer require insulin. And they did not put the cells into the pancreas. Um, they were injected somewhere entirely different, some, somewhere where you can, with much easier access. So there's that option as well. Have you all, and I'm sure you have, I've thought about this, it comes down to the focus question, but it seems like your platform could also help to answer a set of really interesting questions around exceptional people. And what I mean by that are the people who have APOE4 but don't get Alzheimer's or the people who have C9 or 72 but don't go on to develop FTD or ALS. Um, yeah. And there, there, there may be something in their genome or, or otherwise that uh, is protective. How do you think about some of those types of applications where you maybe create a bank of cells or, or, uh, or a single cell line from people like that that might be exceptional? And we could think about all sorts of interesting exceptional examples. I'm sure your team comes up with new ones every week. Well, now we're talking obviously about the use case of these cells as a research tool. As a research tool, yeah. And I mean, yes, you can do incredible, uh, incredible things uh, with with uh, with this approach. So, so just to summarize, what we can do, and what we've shown we can uh, do, is create pure cultures of individual cell types that are highly specified. So, not only cell type uh, or cell identity, but also sub cell identity. So, we can, for example, create a dendritic type one versus two cell, or a particular form of a sensory neuron versus another sensory neuron. And, and, and what you can then do is you can combine very precisely these cells with each other to create more complex model systems. So your question is, the, why are certain mutations not penetrating into disease phenotype? And that's a huge question. It, it could be, of course, that that mutation requires a particular genetic background that has certain risk genes uh, that uh, that enables that. It could also be epigenetic, of course. And it's an incredible question. It's something that we have seen when we induced uh, and created disease models, cells that have exactly the same genetic edit, but don't display a phenotype. Right. I've in my academic lab I had a had a um, a family that we were able to study using uh, stem cells um, where the parent had the same mutation as the son and the parent, there was no phenotype and, and the son was, was heavily autistic. Um, so, so you can see exactly that question and the tools now are here to pick these apart. I think that's that's ex extremely interesting. And the other thing that I find extremely interesting is you can unpick the disease pathology in the context of a more complex tissue. So what you can do is, for example, you can mix, let's say, brain cells that have a disease mutation, neurons, let's say, with microglia that don't have the disease mutation and see whether having the mutation only in one cell population is sufficient to drive the phenotype. And, and, and vice versa, you can, of course, then, you know, create diseased microglia and wild-type um, neurons, um, just as an example. So it's an incredible way of unpicking human disease, which is very different from, you know, 
in a way from the animal models because they're they're always in a different species and and that has massive limitations we're we're coming close to the end of time here and i wanted to just ask you maybe on a more personal level how you found the shift from practicing medicine to i i think you were hybrid practicing medicine and doing research at the same time to now i suspect uh, you're not seeing patients anymore you're spending most of the time building the team and running the company how how has that been how's it been uh, for you what's what's better than you expected what's harder than what you expected i'm still actually seeing patients yeah but so what have i learned so one of the strong one of the big lessons right at the beginning that i got awfully wrong and then fixed with uh, with with, uh, with huge focus and intensity was in a company the team is everything in fact a company is the team and if you if you make compromises here you are damaging the company so you've got to make sure that the people are motivated aligned and that and and that you can work with them and and they can work with each other so that is something i learned the hard way and it's been the reason why we then implemented a very very intense let's say screening or recruitment process and we defined a core set of values that people that we're very open about communicating with anyone so that people can make their own choice as to whether they fit into into bitbio or not and and we also try and live these values. Nothing is perfect, obviously, but you know, we, we really try to embed them in, into the organization. And this has allowed us to create something that I think is very special. So BitBio has a very, very strong uh, culture that I, th- I think any visitor will, will, will sense the moment um, they, they come to us. What do you think is the most unique aspect of the culture, one, one or two? So if you think about it, this is a very deep scientific problem that we have to crack. So it requires a lot of incredibly talented scientists, but not only that, it requires incredible engineering, incredible manufacturing, people that uh, are interested in doing something that's never been done before. So the act of creation is really important. But often you see that the more brainy someone is, the, the less good it is at communication. And so, so we had to find a way of picking individuals that still, that make the effort to connect and, 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 uh, and to, to come together. So, so what are the four values? Very briefly, the, the, the first one is purpose. BitBio's purpose is to program cells to enable new paradigm in medicine novel cures and novel cell therapies. So we're very open with that. Now, people that are thinking of coming into the company can see whether their own purpose matches with this purpose. And it doesn't have to be the same, by the way, but you could, you could be a chap who likes finance, but wants to do something good rather than um, impactful, rather than, you know, perhaps, you know, running a hedge fund or something like that. It could be a scientist that is deeply curious about cell identity, or it could be someone who's really, really passionate about translating something into the clinic. So it provides an umbrella. And of course, when your purpose matches the company's purpose, you immediately are motivated. 
What we try not um, to stay away from is people that don't know. I don't know what my purpose is in life. Th- those w- will not, uh, uh, you know, f- feel very, very home uh, in Bitbio. The second is ambition. There's, of course, two uh, two sets of ambition. Ambition towards the purpose, that's what we're looking for, or self-optimization. That's something that we're very, very negative against. So this is part of the screening process. The third would be then collaboration and trust. Collaboration only requires trust. Again, there's two ways of trust. There's, I would say, the lazy trust. I, we've known each other for the last 10 years. You've always been on my side. I trust you. And there's this other trust, which is leaning forward. I don't know you, but I trust you. And that's an effort. So we're looking pe- for people that, that can make that effort. And finally, we're a science company, so we need to be empirical. Facts above opinions. So that's the core four, I would say, uh, that we've formulated. And that has allowed us to really create a very unique team, very strong, very communicative, very communicative, but even, but at the same time, um, you know, very deep scientifically. I mean, I'm a nerd. I think uh, we're a company of nerds, but I, I would say this is the badge of honor. Yeah. And, and I've interacted with a number of members of your team. And I think, A, they, they live all of those values that you just described. And, and I think what you described as well about having not just smart scientists, but smart scientists and great communicators is uh, is absolutely true and and critical it makes it makes it harder to find people but you've got to be be patient and rigorous right uh, yeah i'm glad you say that yeah no um absolutely it should be difficult to join bitbio and easy to leave it yeah. well mark i know we're up against time thank you so much i think this was a great i appreciate you um entertaining all my uh, left field questions about what what may where this may be going and where it is today is there um if people want to find you they can visit you on your website bitbio.com i assume you're you're always hiring the rate at which you're growing um and for you personally you're on um they can find your your team's contact info on the website are you on social media not not enough, I'd say, <laughs> but I need to up my game here. But uh, thank you for uh, the conversation. Um, and I really enjoyed it. Great. And thanks, everyone, for listening. And as always, please share with a friend if you like the episode. And we'd love if you could leave us a review on your favorite podcast player to help other people find us. Thanks for listening and see you next time. Mm-hmm.